I dedicate this podcast to Caitlin Clark. You know, an artist, a cutting edge artist uh, of <laughs> chaos, razzle dazzle, and explosion in and of herself. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklib. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we are doing a movie swap. I watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind for the first time. And Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Armageddon. <laughs> and equally as an important movie. <laughs> yeah, we went to space. Or space came to us, but we'll get to that. And we'll get to the multitudes that that genre can contain. But before we do that, friend, how are you doing? What have you been watching? I'm doing well. Just wrapped up birthday month. This will be the like third pot in a row where I'm talking about my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Just a whole quarter. Just, yeah. Q1 is about me. Um, no, everything's been great. I've been ill, but we're we're getting past it. But because I've been so sick, I have been watching a lot of movies. So I'm like the first real like you can't work today. You just need to stay in bed and like eat soup kind of sick day. I watched all of the Scream movies that I hadn't seen, which is two, three, four, and five, which is a lot of movies. I had seen the first Scream, and I had seen the most recent one, but none of them in between. And let me tell you, the most recent Scream would have hit me a lot harder had I seen any of the other ones. It is usually how that works. It was still good. Like I still had a great time. So watch all the Scream movies. That was very fun. Um, I also watched Dog Day Afternoon, the Al Pacino movie. The movie is way funnier than I thought it was going to be. I'm not really sure what tone I was expecting. Maybe something a little bit more serious, a little bit more violent kind of, but it's actually like very comical. I really liked that movie a lot. I also watched Closer, which features like so many like famous movie stars. Uh, Natalie Portman, Jude Law, Clive Owen, and Julia Roberts play wow. like the core four, basically. And there's a lot of like uh, manipulation and like switching of partners. And you really don't have anyone to root for, but it's very well done. So I enjoyed finally crossing that one off of my like Tumblr kid list of movie gifs I've been seeing my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Zach? How you been doing? What have you been watching? I've been good, just been watching a lot of basketball, as one does, but also been watching a lot of movies. And like you, I decided to uh, watch an entire series of films, um, but these are all ones that I've seen before. I'm talking about The Hunger Games, ever heard of them? It's because it was on Netflix, and it was leaving Netflix oh. at the end of March. So I think everybody just okay. kind of rushed to it, as as they do. First two movies, still bang. The Mockingjay movies, still not great, but you know, that's how the books go too. I think my biggest revelation though in this rewatch is that PETA is the best out of everybody. That was kind of my takeaway the first time, I think. I was very much caught up in the whole Jennifer Lawrence of it all. And um, in terms yeah. of the guys in the movie, I was really team Finnick. But yeah, I understand. we all come around and I kind of understand the Josh Hutcherson thing now. I also watched uh, Paris Blues, which is a set in Paris, obviously, and has uh, Joanne Woodward, Paul Newman, Sidney Portier, Louis Armstrong. And it was like, pretty good this i learned that the studio kind of backed out of a scenario in which the romances were interracial and so it became less of an interesting movie than it could have been but it was still solid those are, those are movie stars and then uh lastly i saw escape from new york the 1980s action hero movie with kurt russell shout out to snake you can call him snake 
And I watched it at the uh, the new Beverly Theater in downtown Vegas, which super nice. Uh, love the setup they got there. So stoked that we have something like that in Vegas now. I actually might go see The Graduate because they're showing it in a week or two. So we have a new art house theater in Vegas, and I truly could not ask for anything more. And all their movies are just going to cost 10 bucks. So I'll be spending many attends at the Beverly Theater. Hashtag not sponsored, but probably will get an ad read sooner than later. You also recently watched this, right? Yeah, I love John Carpenter. That's very well documented. Um, And so I was happy to get this one off my list. It was really good. I'm so excited for the Beverly in Las Vegas. That's awesome. Phoenix lost its art house theater last year, two years ago, when the film bar closed. So we're definitely like hemorrhaging for something like that right now and um i'm jealous but very excited for you the lineup they've had so far has been really sweet like they've showed in the mood for love they're going to show chunking express they um showed eo all the beauty and the bloodshed um, i haven't been able to get down there as much as i want to but um really stoked about the beverly theater in las vegas so if you're in vegas go check that out as well let's talk about um the movies that we have seen for the first time and that we're swapping um, Amanda, why don't you tell people why we decided to swap these two very different takes on space movies? Because space is so fun. It's fucking space. We wanted to do space movies. Space is a great place to set your movie if you're doing it right. I feel like in the last like 15 years, like fucking every movie's in space. <laughs> Lots but, of space movies, yeah. Like neither of our movies are 21st century movies. Uh, so it was still like very fun and novel to go to space. And so we both noted when we were texting that in my movie, space comes to you. And in your movie, you go to space. So it is sort of a fun little reverse flip on on space. But but also in both movies, kind of space is coming to Earth, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it. That's, that's really fair. <laughs> they have to go to space so space doesn't come to them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Space movies, there's a long history of them. They can be horror movies. They can be comedies. They can be thrillers. They can be every kind of genre. Uh, Space, overrated or underrated? Properly rated. I love space. (laughs) I'm sorry, Miss Dacus. I was going to say, to quote your girl, Lucy Dacus. um, You're my woman. Space is just none of our business. I understand the, the sentiment that maybe we shouldn't like put an Amazon like package center on Mars, but like... Space, man. <laughs> space is great. Oh, Lord. All right. So let's let's just flip a coin and talk about All these right. space movies. <laughs> I picked Tails. <laughs> it's Tails. Where are we going? We're going to space, but like, we're, which movie are we talking about? All right. I say let's go to space first and let's do Armageddon. All right. Sounds good. Amanda, you know what they call our pod? The global killer. The end of mankind. You watched Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be terrible. All right. I did. what'd you think what happens in this movie all right let's start with what happens before we get into what i think (laughs) all right so we start as a series of asteroids hit a space station before crashing into earth and hitting new york city then we learn that there is a giant meteor headed to earth approximately the size of texas in 18 days that will destroy all life flash to an oil rig where harry stamper played by bruce willis fights his young hotshot, like, protege, AJ, played by Ben Affleck, in bed with his daughter, Grace, played by Liv Tyler. It's a lot of names, but I think you guys got it. He chases AJ around the rig, shooting at him, as Grace is screaming until there's, like, an oil eruption that they have to take care of, and they basically stop and go back to that. Back to NASA, 
where they decide to hire the world's greatest oil driller to send to space in order to detonate the meteor before it hits Earth. That oil driller? None other than Harry Stamper. Incredible. Because he has a lot of leverage, possibly the only one who can save humanity, he demands that he brings his own crew up to space, which is where we are fully introduced to the motley crew of men, uh, featuring people like Owen Wilson's character and Steve Buscemi's character. There's a training montage, and eventually they go to space in two teams in two separate spaceships. AJ is the leader of one, and Harry is the leader of the other. AJ promises Grace that he'll return, and they even get engaged before everybody goes up to space, much to Harry's chagrin. The two ships dock at a Russian space station to fuel up where they meet Leave, this Russian astronaut who's been up there for way too long. There's a problem while they're on board and a fire starts and it's very scary. AJ and Lev barely make it out, but they make it onto their ship and now Lev is along for the ride. He's going to space. He's going further into space, I guess. As they approach the asteroid, one of the ships gets hit by space debris and kills everybody on board except for AJ, Lev, and Bear. But because they are now so off course, they use the shuttle's little space robot car to try to find their way to the other ship with the other half of their crew. This is all intercut with shots of NASA and Gray Stamper like freaking out that it's not going to work out. Meanwhile, the crew with Harry is drilling away as Steve Buscemi's character gets space dementia, which was my favorite part of the whole film. Uh, Things are looking pretty bleak. It's really unsure if Harry's team is going to be able to drill far enough down to get the nuclear bomb into the asteroid. AJ's crew evil Knievels their way across the asteroid to get to Harry's crew with no map. It's very interesting. Harry trusts AJ in this big emotional moment to keep digging. They finally break through to put the bomb in and it seems like everything is going to be all right until they figure out that the remote detonation is not going to work. AJ offers to stay behind, saying that it's his duty, Um, but at the last minute, Harry pushes him back into the spaceship, saying it's AJ's turn to take care of Grace. Grace and Harry have an intergalactic FaceTime, and everyone returns home safely. Harry saves the world, and AJ and Grace get married. (laughs) How did I do? You did great, because at the end of the day, I love this stupid movie. There's like whole characters I didn't mention. (laughs) That's fine. It's a crew. You know, it's it's a getting the gang together movie. But no, I think you did great. Um, if you couldn't tell that Amanda really loved this movie and thought it was a very serious work of cinema. Uh, Space Dementia. So why did you <laughs> why did you pick this movie? Because Space Dementia is real and it deserves to be talked about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to bring awareness to Space Dementia. <laughs> no, this is just, it's, it's a 90s blockbuster bullshit space movie, like in the best and worst way, um, which really captures a certain kind of genre of film that more or less we don't get anymore and nobody wants to pay for anymore which you know you you gotta understand as well but um i figured if we were gonna have the artistic venture that is a steven spielberg 70s film we could also have some 90s ridiculousness so with that in mind with that with that boilerplate of a of a recommendation um out there why don't you tell me what your first impressions were what stood out this movie is straight up ridiculous <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad it knows exactly what it is and i just want to like state that up front and i knew exactly what it was going to be when i went into it but it's also quite long and i like found myself like oh my god this movie's like still playing so <laughs> maybe i should get an editor but the other like first thing that really stood out to me that 
is despite the fact that this movie is so ridiculous, Billy Bob Thornton is like really delivering a performance. Yeah. Like he's like really good in this movie. Like there's a direct through line for Billy Bob Thornton in this movie to him in Friday Night Lights. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. To go back to your point on this movie being uh, ridiculous, but like it understands it's ridiculous. I didn't like Bullet Train as much as you did. And like, I think it's because that's a movie that's ridiculous, but continues to comment and be like, isn't this ridiculous? And that's kind of like an action movie thing we have going on right now. When you think of like, yeah, like Free Guy or like even the MCU, like is getting pretty meta at this point. Um, and sometimes it's just really funny to take it seriously and um, and understand that despite the fact that there's probably a better way to blow up an asteroid than send oil drillers, um, we're just going to do it because movie bullshit. Speaking of that, we got to talk about Ben Affleck's teeth. He has the craziest looking Hollywood teeth in this movie. And it is like the whole movie has like the craziest saturation. And his teeth are so white and like so straight. He has like Tom Cruise teeth. And I think these are like the teeth he has now forever. (laughs) But he was like not at this level. Like this was like the first like movie I think in Ben Affleck's career like at this level. And he, like, for sure has, like, Hollywood teeth now. And it really stood out. <laughs> this comes after... So this is in the 98. So he has already done Chasing Amy and obviously done Goodwill Hunting. So he has veneers money now. So when you Google Ben Affleck Armageddon, the second option is teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Just so everyone's aware. Anyway, I thought this was also like kind of a fun, silly movie for 90s Ben to be in. Obviously, he is the heartthrob. He is playing like a a more serious role. But like this is such like a big budget action blockbuster, like where he's been in so many like hyper serious art focused films up until then. And this is like, I am a movie star and watch me make this ridiculous film and really take it seriously. And he did. He did great. He was very believable as AJ. Yeah. I mean, it's the perfect role for him at the time if you want, like, given that he wanted to pursue the movie stardom kind of tracked more than like Matt Damon did. Um, Matt Damon did it in a different way, even though they had the same starting point. And like playing opposite Bruce Willis and winning his favor over the course of a movie, I can't imagine a more effective way to do it in the 90s the other thing that really stood out to me is that this movie has a pretty diverse cast for the 90s and it doesn't at all feel forced um and also of michael bay female performances which are notoriously sexualized to like a ridiculous degree i thought that Liv tyler's character grace stamper like she had a lot to stand on which i was like really impressed by and obviously there's like a whole scene where she's half naked for like kind of no reason. Like she stands on her own. She's very independent. Her whole character is sort of like, I can do this. You've trained me to do this, dad. Like you just need to trust me. And I I appreciated that. So let's talk about animal crackers. <laughs> so it's AJ's last day on earth. It's their last day on earth before they go on this mission. And so this could be the last time AJ and Grace have together. Obviously they're in love. They've been, you know, sleeping together for six months at this point. So we cut to a scene underscored by strings at sunset under a tree cinema with like a car commercial happening in the back, basically. And they're laying down. And then Ben Affleck goes into like a Steve Irwin narration 
talking about going up north to Liv Tyler's bra or then down south to down south. <laughs> and, and and then someone says, I wonder if there's anyone else on this planet doing this exact same thing at this exact same time. And then Grace replies, I hope so. And God. then they cue, I don't want to miss a thing. I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> So this is what I mean by like it feels like a spoof of this exact movie, but this is the movie that they're all spoofing. Like it, <laughs> I think there's an armpit kiss in there somewhere. That's weird. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and they're uh, like, okay, and then bring in the song played by Liv Tyler's dad. Just like play that right now. That'll be totally normal and fine. <laughs> that song still goes. <laughs> oh, that um, song reminds me of you. Why? This is such a good Amanda and Zach origin story. Oh, Christ. The first time that you and I went to Vegas together was over spring break when you needed to get home to Vegas to cover basketball. Yes. And we were probably 19 or 20. And your dad, very politely concerned, texted and was like, you guys are going to be like driving through the night. Like, please make sure that like she stays awake, like chat, like play music, like make sure that everything's going to be OK. You guys are like children driving through the desert. So at, like full volume, you play and sing as obnoxiously as possible the entirety of Don't Want to Miss a Thing. And you're like giving like a, a heartfelt performance in my car <laughs> to this song. To keep me awake. I wasn't sleepy, but <laughs> <laughs> it's not that long of a drive and I have a caffeine addiction. I was going to be okay, but I really appreciated the thought. <laughs> and you're like, my dad said I have to keep you awake. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so every time I hear the song, it's what I think of. <laughs> That's so embarrassing. So I was talking to one of our, <laughs> our mutual friends, Dominic Catronio, right before recording this podcast. And we were talking about how we've been friends for about almost 10 years. And how it's wild that we're still friends because when you meet a friend in college or high school or anything like that, but probably college, especially freshman year of college, you're your most insufferable version of yourself. Correct. And my most insufferable version of myself was singing Aerosmith apparently while on the 93 <laughs> headed to Vegas. I had a great time. We that's made so, it to Vegas. That's true. Now we have a podcast. Um, also, we're still friends. Yeah, that, yeah that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's good. Um, anyway. That animal cracker scene has lived in my head rent-free. It probably impacted the way I thought about romance as a young child, which is unfortunate for every girl I had a crush on throughout school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I agree that Liv Tyler is good, even though she gets relegated to like wife in a boxing movie kind of role where she just is concerned at every development. um, She does have some good moments as well. What have you thought about the most since watching this movie? I'm very happy with how far we've come with space CGI. Yeah. That was one of my big takeaways. Um, I recently watched Interstellar for my very first time this year, and I was, like, so blown away by that movie. And, you know, Armageddon is not (laughs) Interstellar. (laughs) And that's fine. It doesn't need to be. It's made with very different money and a very different time period from very, very different producers and directors. Um, but it was just something I noticed. And uh, I also recently watched um, World War Z. Oh, yeah. It's like when you're on the brink of like new CGI or new developments, like the first one's always going to like the, the early parts are always going to suck. It's like, look at this new technology we have. Isn't this cool? And then you look back like five years and it looks like, you know, how it looks. It's one of those movies where like I this is not Armageddon is much better than this movie, 
But similarly, earlier this year, I watched The Butterfly Effect with Ashton Kutcher, which is not a good movie. But it's one of those things where, like, if you just give in immediately, you're in for the ride of your life. And, like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's so, like, silly and the writing is wonky and the visuals are really over the top and, like, the color of the movie is really high contrast. But if you just, like, buckle in at day, like, scene one and you're like, all right, this is what we're doing. We're watching an asteroid the size of Texas come hit the Earth, but maybe not because of Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, then, like, you're going to have a good time. And they did that and they sent those people to space and there was a, there was a lot of space once they were up there there was a lot of space content once <laughs> once they got to space a lot of like asteroid attacks a lot of like shaking the they were always like shaking <laughs> something i know space seems like a bad time i'd love to go to space <laughs> i'm not cut out for space i am i'm not i could not pass the uh the astronaut test but seems like a great time uh, what else did you think about it, watching this movie? The scenes of like people praying all over the world have just been <laughs> playing in my head because they seem like so absurd. Like I, I understand it. It's going to hit the whole earth and then everyone's going to die. And like they're all tuned in to find out if Harry Stamper is going to like save the planet. I understand why we're like at all these junctions of the earth watching this thing. It just was like so... I don't know. It was just so funny. It's, <laughs> so it's, 90s. It's, it's so silly, right? One of the best scenes is when the Eiffel Tower just gets fucking demolished. <laughs> and yet the Arc de Triomphe, untouched. <laughs> They're not that far away. But also, like, I feel like that scene like also happened in The Eternals, like, two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of jarring. I think it. if we're keeping it under Michael Bay, it happens in the Transformers every single time. This is what I mean by, like, original text. Like, it really is. I don't. What did we watch last month? Oh. Uh, Singing in the Rain. <laughs> Singing, in, Singing the in the Rain. Like, it is a version. <laughs> They're in the same category, <laughs> only in the way where, like, every movie is based off of this movie. So, let's just be clear. <laughs> you need to follow along with me, Zach. Michael, I'm Michael on a Bay's, lot no, of no, no, no. I'm just repeating. I'm just making sure I'm picking up what you're putting down and clarifying it for our our listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so Michael Bay's Armageddon mm-hmm. is like Singing in the Rain, only in the way. <laughs> no, no, no. The, but like, yes or no? <laughs> they're in a similar category. That's a yes. Okay, I don't so, know if they're alive. <laughs> Gene Kelly, eat your heart out. Speaking of. <laughs> Michael Bay and just yes, the bayness of it all. Uh, why don't you tell me yes. the first things you looked up about this movie? So, Michael Bay doesn't make movies for me, so I don't know a ton about him. Um, so I wanted to know like where it was in his career. Was he like established? Was this like the blueprint? Kind of where is he at? Um, so this is his first listing as producer, but not his first as director. Um, He had directed a ton of music videos up to this point. Him and my main man, David Fincher, were sort of coming up around the same time in L.A. doing a ton and ton of music videos. That's why, like, most 90s music videos look the same. Um, And so at this point, 
It is his like first listing as producer, but he had done a few movies. He had done the Bad Boys movie with Will Smith. He had done The Rock with um, Nicolas Cage. But it is like one of his first movies at this level. Um, And my main takeaway was just like he was immediately, this is the style of movie I make. This is my career. And he just put like a, a huge stamp on the type of movie that he wants to create. And when I think about people like Wes Anderson, who is, you know, one of my favorite creators, those first few movies don't look like the movies he's making now. Like Bottle Rocket is very different from, you know, the Grand Budapest Hotel as far as style. And you really have to hand it to someone who's like, hey, this is my third movie and this is the type of movie I make. And I think Fincher does a really good job of that. And I think Michael Bay did like a very impressive job of just being like, this is a fucking Michael Bay movie and you're never going to forget it. And that's like a very confident and cool thing to do. And it's been consistent for like the decades after. Like when you think of a Michael yeah. Bay film, you you know you're going to get a maximalist movie. It's probably going to be stupid too. But like at the end of the day, I also am going to go see Fast and Furious 10 um, this summer. So um, there is a space for those movies as well. And uh, just like we know what a, what a, like you said, a Wes Anderson film is going to be like or a Fincher film is going to be like uh, – we know what a Michael Bay film is going to be like too. And there's uh, something to be said about um, kind of establishing that that tone for yourself. Yeah. I've seen some of the movies he's produced. Like he's been like a producer on The Quiet Place and he was a producer on some of the Purge movies. And, but uh, like those aren't necessarily like his movies, you know, and um Gotta say, didn't make it to Six Underground, didn't make it to Ambulance, didn't make it to 13 Hours. The The movie that's coming up next is Robo Apocalypse. Hell yeah, brother. Actually, I'm sorry. It's Robopocalypse. Hell yeah, brother. Not Apocalypse. Yeah. Um, that was also one of my notes. I'm not sure where I put it, but it is. This is a hell yeah, brother movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else did yeah. you look up about this movie? So like usual, I want to know sort of what the reaction was like at the time. Um, it was the highest grossing movie of 1998. In opening weekend, it made 360. No, it made. Oh, that would be crazy. In opening weekend, it made 36 million dollars, which is pretty solid. Um, but it was definitely mixed reviews by critics. So I did I did poll to critic reviews that I thought like sort of showcased what both sides were at. Um, Roger Ebert, one of the world's most famous film critics and respected film critics. This is on his list of most hated films. That makes sense. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, this is not a movie for Raj. Uh, In the original review, he said, this movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. (laughs) Bro, that's a bar. Scorcher. He took a global killer and, and threw it at this movie. An assault on the human desire to entertain. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, you just so like, angry fuck your that. movie, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mike, I hated it. That's uh. so funny. Um, so this is like something that I read a lot about was the fact that this movie is in the Criterion Collection. Hell yeah, which, it is. <laughs> which like, if you don't know, is like a specialist film distributor that primarily works in art house films. And markets what is considered to be like important and classic contemporary films and quote cinema at its finest. 
I just got a handful of DVDs from the Criterion Collection sale. They're gorgeous, and I'm in love with all of them. Um, But... Uh, This is right from the Wikipedia page. In an essay supporting the selection of Armageddon into the Criterion Collection, film scholar Janine Basinger, who taught Michael Bay at Wesleyan University, which of course Michael Bay went to Wesleyan, so it makes a lot of sense, uh, states that the film is, quote, a work of art by a cutting edge artist who is a master of movement, light, color, and shape, and also of chaos, razzle dazzle, and explosion. Uh, She sees it as a celebration of working men. Uh, Quote, this film makes these ordinary men noble, lifting their efforts up into an epic event. And uh, further, she states, this is where I disagree with her. Uh, Further, she states that in the first few moments of the film, all of the main characters are well established, saying, if that isn't screenwriting, I don't know what is. And you know what? It's kind of not wrong on all those fronts, but I can imagine (laughs) Criterion Collection being like, DVD of Armageddon coming out this <laughs> fall. If you go on Letterboxd, a good chunk of the reviews are, how the fuck is this a Criterion edition? <laughs> <laughs> Next to Celine Siama's masterpiece, a portrait of a lady on fire, you can also receive Michael Bay's masterpiece, Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, there's portrait of a lady on fire, and then there's chaos, razzle dazzle, and explosion. That is Armageddon. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of where it all Accumulates to, uh, in a quick Googling, um, I saw there was a whole section for the Academy Awards, the Criterion Collection, and the Academy. We're like, you know what? Award this movie. And uh, sort of. Uh, this movie, as I said earlier, this is where I wrote it, is the biggest hell yeah brother um, after Top Gun Maverick being nominated for Best Picture and the discussion of the hell yeah brother movie. Uh, this is one of the OGs. It was nominated for four Oscars, Best Sound, Best Sound Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Song for I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Um, it did not win any of them, but if it went to any, I would those four are good. Those are fine with me. Honestly, well earned. Um, I did want to give a quick shout out to Diane Warren, who is a composer and like sound producer. Um, and she has been nominated 14 times for Best Original Song, and she has never won. Damn. I know. Um, including, she was nominated this year for a movie I did not recognize. Like, the the song that played, like, oh, that second, one. when everyone yeah. was like, what From is From a movie this? that we and were like, does that one exist? Yeah. Um, she was nominated for that. <laughs> Jesus. Um, wow. Good, you know, great job by Armageddon. I'm glad the... Uh took that rocket ship all the way to the oscars even if they didn't get any wins so great job by all those below the line people um do you have any other questions about this movie yeah so this is what i like to refer to as the clarice starling effect of like this actor is simply this character in my mind because of a certain movie is there any role in this film that you imagine when you think of this actor like i see them as this character yeah, like when you're like, oh, Bruce Willis. No, that's absolutely Henry, not. Harry. <laughs> no, this is the opposite where I don't remember the <laughs> characters' names. And I'm like, oh, this is the part where Bruce Willis leaves uh, and has to fix the bomb with the air f- with, with the military guy. And then the coach from Remember the Titans says, why do you, why do you do it with a gun in space? <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. The opposite Clarice Starling effect. The anti-Starling. <laughs> 
Um, do you have any questions for me? A handful. So what I love about this movie, or one of the things I love about this movie, is just the cast of characters. Other than you know Bruce Willis, Billy Bob, and Ben Affleck, do you have a favorite supporting character in this film? Does that mean Liv Tyler is a supporting character? Let's just say no for argument's sake. Okay, because she's <laughs> definitely. Do you have a fail like... of the uh, a favorite of the uh, the the crew? The Motley crew. Um, <laughs> definitely uh, Owen Wilson's character, um, <laughs> who is just his character from the Royal Tenenbaums, just like pre-Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, I love the line where he's like, so what is it going to be like up there? And Billy Bob Thornton's like, oh, it's 200 degrees in the sun and negative 200 degrees in the uh, shade. And it's rocky and mountainous and sharp and ball and he's like so it's like the worst and you could have just said it's the worst environment <laughs> like imaginable he's great his, his lowest feels like i'm like 10 percent nervous 90 percent like excited or maybe it's 90 percent excited and 10 percent mostly mostly i nervous. relate yeah i also love the scene where he is writing um backlit by a, a desert <laughs> sunset riding a horse as helicopters come up yeah, I mean that's From behind to try- it's perfect. That that when he gets like a lifetime achievement award, that's gonna be like right in the thick of it. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> like, also his name is Oscar Choice. <laughs> I, I mean, why didn't he get a best supporting Oscar nomination? <laughs> it, well, because you know it, it was right there for him. I'll take this moment to uh, shout out Michael Clark Duncan for his uh, l- delivery of "Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you." And <laughs> yeah. And also uh, Will Patton, who plays Chick as Harry's right-hand man. All right, so another question, another hypothetical. Uh, if you are getting shot up into space to go save the world with your oil rig buddies, how do you react? Like, who are you most like in this scenario? Are you Rockhound? I think I have to, I, I'm not in all senses except for the fact that I'd probably get space dementia, which is the funniest line I've ever heard. When he like says something <laughs> so absurd, and then Will Patton's character is like, he's got space dementia, and everyone's like, got it. <laughs> like, no one asks <laughs> any questions. <laughs> no, like, what does that mean? He's, this isn't a scenario, mind you, in which Rockhound has forgotten something, which is, what dementia is he's just saying something like absurd and they're like he's got a case of space dementia and i was like what and i was like noted moving on tape him to that thing i'll be honest i didn't realize that space dementia wasn't a thing until like far too old zach this is a seminal text he's got space dementia man um i don't know i'm staying home that's who i am in this scenario maybe i'm lev Maybe I'm like, you know what? Let me just, let me do it myself. You're not going to let me stay. I've been up in space for 18 months by myself on this space station. You're not going to let me be the hero? No, no, no. It doesn't sound right. I can see you like taking a wrench to something and be like, I am a real American hero. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have, who do you want to (laughs) be? Honestly, I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be Owen Wilson because he doesn't have to suffer with any of this. He like dies <laughs> immediately. True. He dies pretty fast. <laughs> Although it would be fun to be um, Colonel Willie Sharp, who was played by William Fitchner, because um, he's just like the guy who has to be like in the way the whole time, and then like really dramatically, <laughs> like, "Do you swear on your kid, on my kids, 
Will you hit 800 feet? Yeah. You know, but amazing. Just, he's just a real hard nosed type of guy. Um, Art. All right. Last question. <laughs> um, would you watch this movie again? Mm, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> again, Michael Bay doesn't make movies for me, and that's fine. Not every movie has to be for me. Um, the last note I'll, I'll, I'll share before we uh, move on to our next movie is if. Uh, you do want to watch this movie again, I suggest watching it with the commentary because Ben Affleck is really just delivering um, and, and shitting on the movie. It's really one of those commentaries where like, you're not sure if the, the people taking part in the commentary ever thought that people would listen to the commentary. And it's that's great. It's one of the best performances of his career. Ben loves commentary. He does. The ones of him, the ones of him and Finch are could be their own film. That's true. That's a good point. They're so funny. When I told my trainer that I was going to be watching this movie, she's like, I can't believe you've never seen Armageddon. It was like basically Titanic. And I was like, that can't be right. <laughs> she I was like, like, everybody saw that movie in 98. Like everybody saw that movie. And I was like, that's probably, uh, that might be more true than the fact that it's Titanic. Let's go to Indiana. Let's make it happen. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. I love Close Encounters. But first, let's take a break. Zach, you watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'm just never gonna have like a good opening line. I'm just gonna give. I'm just gonna give up. How is your mashed potato mountain going? <laughs> I, I eat them too fast. <laughs> Tell me what happened in Steven Spielberg's 1977 UFO classic, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, they ate some mashed potatoes. No. Um. All right. Close <laughs> and then the movie ends. <laughs> <laughs> Close Encounters of the Third Kind, written and directed by Sammy Fable. I mean Steven Spielberg. Ever heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> the movie opens in the Sonoran Desert where French scientist Claude Lacombe, played by Francois Truffaut, ever heard of him, and other researchers discover a flight from World War II that had gone missing. The plane is perfect, but the crew is missing. Researchers find a ship in the Gobi Desert under similar circumstances, and in Muncie, Indiana, strange things start happening, including a three-year-old's toys operating on their own. The boy named Barry, who is played by Carrie Guffey, runs outside, and his mother, Jillian, played by Melinda Dillon, chases after him. On the same night, a large-scale power outage rolls through the area, and electrician Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfus, goes to investigate but has a close encounter that shakes him dramatically. He becomes obsessed with UFOs and starts having visions about a mountain-like shape. Jillian and Barry have an encounter of their own um, at their house, and Barry is abducted. Meanwhile, Lacombe and a group of UN experts continue to investigate the UFO activity, which brings them to India, where they hear a report of a five-tone musical phrase. They broadcast that phrase to outer space and receive coordinates that point to Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Back in Indiana, Roy's family leaves him as his behavior gets more and more wild and eccentric and it becomes more and more obsessed with the UFOs. Roy and Jillian see a broadcast that shows the same mountain that they have been seeing in their mind, and so they go, where they find others who have been experiencing the same visions as them. They persist past public warnings about a nerve gas in the area, and eventually they are apprehended by the army. 
Roy and Jillian are questioned by the Coleman's team before being put into a van to move off-site, but they sneak out and head toward the mountain. There, they see government specialists communicating with the UFOs until a mothership comes. When the mothership comes, they begin to play that five-tone musical phrase back and forth um, and kind of have a conversation of sorts. Eventually, the ship opens up and releases all the missing people, including the World War II pilots, the sailors, Barry reunites with his mother, um, and the government then prepares a group to board the mothership, including Roy, and then they go up into space with the aliens. Um, I know I skipped kind of like the whole uh, media messaging plot of this film, but how did I do? You did great. That's basically the movie. Why don't you tell me why you picked this one? So, I mean, many reasons. Uh, I love Steven Spielberg, obviously. We've been talking a lot about him after The Fablemans and the Oscars and really just being... That movie, The Fablemans, was such a throwback to his 70s early 80s movies and like what people love Spielberg for and so Close Encounters had been on my mind and then when you hadn't seen it I was like this is a perfect opportunity and I know that you had also seen The Fableman so uh, it was a, a good chance to talk about this Spielberg classic. And you know what this will not be the last time that we bring up The Fablemans while we discuss this movie. Absolutely. All right. So let's start at the top. When you were watching, what were your first impressions and what stood out? Off the jump, it's kind of the pacing. This is a little bit of a slower burn um, after a really exciting uh, beginning. Like it opens with a big note and like very dramatic and like mystery and all that stuff. And then once Richard Dreyfuss's character has that moment with the UFOs, it really kind of gets mundane into like family life and it helps kind of build that distance between what Roy is feeling versus like what his family kind of needs from him and the, and the kind of breaking of that family scenario. But um, I thought Roger Ebert put it well to bring up Raj again. He said, quote, the film reached out and touched us with violence and ecstasy. And then we were in the midst of the mundane again, but in an everyday world touched with mystery. And so it, I thought it really highlighted um, the absurdity, the chaos, the, cover-up attempts um, that can happen and how that interacts with like a small community, like a small town in Indiana. And you have to wait basically 90 minutes between the encounter with the third kind and that moment where you see the UFOs and the moment where you see the aliens until the very end. And it reminded me a little bit of Jaws, obviously. This is Steven Spielberg's follow-up to that iconic movie where you don't really see the shark until the end. But um Instead of the looming sense of terror that uh, Bruce the Shark brought, uh, you kind of have this off-kilter family drama mystery situation that comes in that kind of is fitting with with space. Yeah, you basically see Richard Dreyfuss's character just like fall to insanity throughout the whole movie. And it's really frustrating because you you were there with him when the close encounter happened. You know it's real and you know that like, he is valid for trying to find answers, but you're also watching it completely destroy his family and he is not able to let it go. And so you get sort of both emotions at the same time. And then it culminates with this, you know, it's sort of bookend by these two massive moments with the third kind. The other thing that stood out to me was obviously the last half hour. Uh, it's where you finally get the payoff. 
I noticed probably halfway through as as Roy and Jillian are kind of just watching this interaction between the government and the UFOs and the mothership, there's like no dialogue. And I guess it's fitting because like, what, what can you say about that other than, you know, they're, they're trying. What if we used music to communicate, Zach? Well, uh, and then counterpoint arrival. <laughs> yeah, similar idea. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but uh, it, it was really stunning and I, I couldn't help but think like, damn, this must have been so sick to see in theaters. Because if you think about it, uh, I'll get to this later, but space movies were really having a moment in, the, in this year and the year before, um, but they didn't show what Spielberg created. And it could have gone so wrong. It could have looked like a hokey B movie if they don't get the UFOs right, if they don't get the aliens right. And um, it's just a, such a well-executed sequence in that last half hour. In Ebert's interview with Spielberg, he asked about, you know, that moment where it's just them trying to communicate with the aliens. And Spielberg said, quote, I wanted to make the meeting between humans and extraterrestrials something benign. No guns and missiles and nuclear bombs to greet them, but a meeting of the minds. So really the anti-Michael Bay approach uh, to uh, meeting aliens. But that's like such a Steven Spielberg idea. To keep it to Spielberg's mind, knowing what we know about his family, that his mom is a pianist and his dad is a scientist that sequence really combines those two influences very clearly um, and in a really fun way. We'll definitely talk about it because I obviously saw Close Encounters before seeing The Fablements and you saw it after seeing The Fablements, but seeing it again, rewatching it for this episode after having watched The Fablements, I was like, oh my, this is yeah. mom and dad. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Um, like they're they're all mom and dad, but like this is mom and dad. <laughs> there, yeah, there are some scenes where I literally thinking specifically of scenes in, in the Fableman. So uh, probably the, that'll be the case from now on. But mm-hmm. um, the last thing that really stood out on first watch was that scene in the house with Jillian and Barry. My first thought was like, holy shit, this is a like style bath of a sequence. Um, as the mm-hmm. UFO is trying to coax Barry outside, it it kind of reminded me of the sequence in Nope as well, where um, yeah the being is above Kiki Palmer and uh, Daniel Kaluuya in their house, obviously in a less freaky sense, but speaking of freaky little kids, uh, when it comes to alien shit, um, terrifying. And I, so what I thought of during this scene for, you know, watching it this time is a movie. I'm sure you're not going to watch. Um, but Steven Spielberg wrote the original poltergeist movie, oh. um, which is one of my favorite films. And as I was watching, this scene with Barry in the house, I was like, oh, yeah, Steven Spielberg was involved in both of these movies. They're very similar. There's like a very similar energy of like this entity that is evil is trying to, you know, like you said, coax a child out from its parents and then maybe we'll get them back. Maybe we never will again. And like, it's not, you know, they're kidnapped, but it's not like you can hunt someone down for it. Like all of this kind of stuff. It's it's extraterrestrial or it's um, uh, supernatural um, and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot he was involved in, <laughs> in, the, in Poltergeist. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and then speaking of uh, the little kid, Barry is a fucking menace, man. He's just always getting into some shit. Um, and the actor, uh, uh, was three years old when he played it. The actor's name, Carrie Guffey. And so Steven Spielberg had to do a lot to get this performance out of this kid as you would have to for any three-year-old to even like go to sleep. Um, including, but not limited to like 
when little Barry reacts to the aliens approaching the house, um, Spielberg would like unwrap a present for the actor to make him smile. Um, another time where the little kid is supposed to be scared, he hid two of the um, crew members in like like animal costumes behind blinds, and went, so when he ran over to the window, he unveiled those people hiding, so he'd get scared. But then the last time they shot it, uh, it he unveiled that one of them was like the makeup artist or something that the kid would recognize, so he smiled at the end too. And I think that's the shot they used. He's so good with children. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, too, it was fun reading the reviews of this movie. I, I feel like we should put on the bingo card. We'll talk about this in a second. But um, <laughs> in Ebert's review, in Pauline Kael's review, and some of the other scholarship around the movie, this is coming after Jaws. And so it's like, how is Spielberg going to follow up Jaws? And mm-hmm. he follows up with this. And it's like, he's still like in his 20s. And, you know, his, his age shows at some points. But then... It was just like this real injection um, during a really fun time in Hollywood. So uh, it's just all these sequences, it, it, the the myth making of Steven Spielberg is is really like solidifying at this point. It's not interesting to talk about how wonderful. No, you know what? <laughs> but... It is because there was a whole like pushback against Steven Spielberg <laughs> on the internet last year. During oh the my fa- God. No, fuck that. <laughs> it's like, like, we don't need to overthink this, guys. He's one of the most important and impactful American directors in the last 50, 60 years. What a guy. He uh, he had just turned 31 when Close Encounters came out. Wow. I love Steven Spielberg so much. Um, so what have you, aside from Steven Spielberg, what have you thought about most since watching the film? Steven Spielberg's family. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, we alluded to it, but... Any critic who had been around for a while or, you know, knows their movies is, saw The Fablemans last year and was like, this is a real skeleton key or Rosetta Stone for the rest of his movies. Like, they saw every movie in The Fablemans. And now that I'm watching a lot of Spielberg movies now, I see a lot of Fablemans in all the movies. Um, particularly think of the disintegration of the family structure. And I'm thinking of, like, the one of the fight scenes between Roy and Ronnie they're screaming at each other. Meanwhile, the kids are just kind of there watching and the son is just standing there watching. And I literally was thinking in the moment of the scene in the Fablemans where he, like his family is fighting and Sammy just like disassociates and sees himself filming it. I was like, Oh fuck. (laughs) Um, Yes. And at this point, this is the point in the Steven Spielberg canon where like, we don't realize that's going to be what most of his movies are about. As a, yeah. as a big COD, but still like the juxtaposition, I think really impressed a lot of people of, you know, tackling this big technical achievement as well as grounding it, even though it's not like particularly uh stunning story or like stunning characters or anything, but it grounds you in like, not the stakes, but just, it gives you, it's just sneaks in this real um emotional pull within this sci-fi story. Yeah. And um, a big part of the Fablemans was that this is sort of the first movie that he made about his family once he had found out from his father that it the reason for the divorce wasn't was because of his mother. Like he blamed his father for, you know, I don't know Steven Spielberg, but the story goes that he blamed his father for breaking up their family, basically for being obsessive, for giving away their family, for letting the mom run like 
move away, like all this stuff. And so a lot of his movies at this time are about, you know, father abandonment and having poor relationships with your father. You know, obviously in this movie, you see a dad like totally fall into obsession and be so selfish that he cannot step away and at the behest of his entire family. And, you know, once Steven Spielberg was older, I think it was like only like 10, 15 years ago or something as it goes that he had like a very frank conversation with his parents and they told him basically like, no, I took the blame for the divorce so that you wouldn't hate your mother. But it was, and even his mom was like, yeah, like I was the one who like couldn't do this anymore. And your dad was kind enough basically to like not hurt my little artist heart and like took all the blame and like took all your hatred. And it is like so clear to me when Richard Dreyfuss's character is sort of acting the way Michelle Williams's character acts in uh, The Fablemans, this like turn of like, oh, now he is understanding i don't want to say who the blame goes to but he's understanding maybe who holds more responsibility in this divorce now compared to when he was younger yeah i think that's a real uh deft point you're making um the other um scene that was really affecting um in this aspect was the mashed potato scene like even though the mashed potato scene is like funny to talk about um you also just see the son sobbing Oh, when he's like welling up with tears. And and Roy has no idea until he's done making this mashed potato mountain. And he like can't stop. He can't stop. Yeah, he's, he's addicted. <laughs> doesn't mean he's addicted to, to this. He's addicted and obsessed um, with this experience that he had. Um, and it's it's so heartbreaking and I didn't expect it. And and um, it was real, just really impactful uh, or not impactful. It was really just it, just a gut punch of a moment. Um, in the midst of all this, um, I mentioned earlier how it must have been nuts in theaters to see this film. Um, just a real spectacle. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of signs in terms of them restraining and not showing the aliens right away. Uh, obviously, uh, people made a lot of comparisons between M. Night and Steven, uh, my good friend Steven, when <laughs> friend of the pod, <laughs> yeah, as M. Night Shyamalan was coming up, but uh, that that obviously connected in my brain um and then i found out also that the this movie had the same special effects person as um stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey his name is douglas trumbull and he said that this one was a little bit harder than 2001 because 2001 took place in this future um it it could be kind of detached whereas this one was very much grounded and and they showed aliens um which is a choice that uh stanley kubrick did not make um or did not go for so uh i thought that was of note and then um, the other thing I thought about while watching is once I realized that this movie came out in 1977, I real I was like, oh, shit, this movie came out the same year as Star Wars, uh, which is fun for a few aspects, fun because they're both space stories, but also fun because Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are noted friends. Just look up any photo, like just look up Steven Spielberg, George Lucas photo and then uh, of, of each other's movies. And they're just two guys having fun um, on each other's films. Uh George Lucas was uh, not as confident in his film as like he was in Steven Spielberg's film since Steven had come out with Jaws at this point. And so the two made like a wager and they gave each other 2.5% of the profits in each other's movies. 
That's awesome. Because George Lucas didn't expect Star Wars to pop off like it did. So Spielberg kind of bet against his own movie and and won because Star Wars became a sensation. There's a Steven Spielberg documentary on HBO Max that I suggest people watch if they really like his work. Um, And there's a lot of really good like photos and footage of young George Lucas and young Steven Spielberg like at like figuring out how to be directors together in their like our age it's crazy it's a little hollywood brat pack yeah a hundred percent so what were some of the things you looked up um once you finished the movie immediately i looked up why was francis francois Truffaut in this movie if anybody doesn't know uh legendary director like real spearhead of the french new wave uh before that he was a movie critic um i just found it incredibly random and in looking it up, it just basically was good timing. Um, Steven Spielberg always wanted him in this role, uh, but he procrastinated the call because he was like, I don't know, is he going to really want to be in this film? Like, nah. But then it happened. And um, if you look up some quotes about Truffaut's experience, he thought he had some questions, but he also just kind of respected Spielberg and was impressed by the young director's abilities on set. Um Another thing I looked up was so when I when I rented the film on whatever streaming platform I rented it on, it said director's cut, and I couldn't find like original cut or anything like that. And so I watched it. And so when I after I watched it, I looked up just what was different. Turns out there was there's three different versions of this film. There's, there's I th- noticed the same thing when I was when I went to uh, watch it. I was like, which one of these movies am I yeah. supposed to pick? <laughs> yeah. And so there's there's the first version of the film, um, which came out and was pretty similar to the second or to the third. They're all pretty similar. But the second film, Spielberg convinced the studio to let him recut it. Um, but the deal was that he had to include the inside of the mothership, which he didn't like doing. But he wanted to take out some scenes. He wanted to uh, expand on some scenes. They even reshot some stuff. And that released three years after the original drop. And then when it was getting ready for the home edition, he uh, wanted to recut it again and uh, call it the collector's edition. And basically he took out that mothership sequence, which you can find on YouTube. And it is pretty cool, but it doesn't really add anything to the story. I kind of like the mystery aspect to it that once um, Roy gets on the ship, it, it goes away. Um, he's We're no longer with him. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting uh, because... To my understanding, at that point, there wasn't a lot of like director's cuts re-releases, especially of you know big budget films like this. But um, Roger Ebert, if you look it up, gave both versions of the film four stars. But he did like the recut version, um, even though, and he and he also liked the the mothership sequence as well. So, um, hmm. you know, what are you gonna say? I've never seen the mothership sequence. I'll have to look that up. It's it's like four or five minutes um, of just yeah. childhood wonder, as as one does. Spielberg is like. A literal master at capturing wonder on a face. Yeah. (laughs) It's just remarkable. This movie was re-released for its 40th anniversary in 2017 and ended up actually being like the 13th biggest earner that weekend. It was a weird uh, weekend for movies. Um, And uh, one of our favorites, Sean Fennessy, wrote a column for The Ringer, kind of doing a little bit of hand-wringing over the state of movies as he is one to do. Um, And kind of spun it to like say like, you know, movies can be in a weird spot, but they're also in a good spot. This uh, the re-release came a week before it came out, 
Mm. And mm-hmm. um, there was a quote that the director of it, Andy Muschietti, said actually that Close Encounters was a quote seminal experience because it quote scared the bejesus out of him. Um, so that's a fun I love little, that uh, connection there. Obviously, a la- last thing I looked up was awards. Uh, looked up the Oscars history, nine noms, uh, including Steven Spielberg getting a nomination for Best Director, which he did not get for Jaws. Um, but the film did win for cinematography. And it also won a Grammy for Best Instrumental Composition. Uh, Hell so yeah, brother. Sh- shout out to John Williams there. I read a review. I think it was Pauline Kael said that John Williams' score wasn't good. Um, and it's okay for Pauline Kael to be wrong. And then uh, on the original AFI 100 uh, this film came in at number 64. I don't believe it was on the 10th anniversary edition, though. I would love to see this movie in theaters. It just, you know, it's one of those films that when you're watching it at home, at least I had this experience rewatching it, that I was like, my TV is like not nearly big enough. And when you compared it to Nope earlier, that reminds me of like when Nope came out, I was like, I literally need to find the biggest screen in the valley and see this movie. And that's how I would love to see Close Encounters if I uh, ever get a chance. And actually, the week that Nope came out, Close Encounters was playing at IMAX, but oh, wow. I was not I was not free that day, unfortunately. Um, and I would have loved to have seen it um, in that scenario. That would yeah. have been amazing. But the score, is, I'm glad that it won Best Instrumental Composition. It's Definitely not his one of his like top three most famous scores. I think like you know Jaws or E.T. or Indiana Jones, obviously uh, Jurassic Park. Like those take some of those top tier awards. But the fact that this is a, a movie about using sound to communicate, I think that John Williams does such an incredible job of integrating like his composition in the movie. And then I'm, I forgot to include this on uh, in the bullet points. Another thing I looked up was also just how they came up with the five-note phrase. Oh, tell me more. John Williams apparently wrote more than 300 examples of it as they tried to figure it out. At one point, Spielberg wanted it to be a seven-note situation, but it just would end up taking too long. Um, and... You know, so they created this like kind of mathematical language with it. Uh, Spielberg called it, quote, when you wish upon a star meets science fiction, which I thought was fun. And then I don't know if this is in every version of the movie, but in the one that I think we watched, you can hear a, like a nod to the Jaws score really quickly. Um, yes, I which, did notice that too. <laughs> which I was like, you sly dog, Steven, you know? <laughs> It sounds silly to be like, this was a technically really great movie, but like it won cinematography. The sound is is all like this original stuff and really creative. Um, I was paying attention to where the horizon was the whole time um, <laughs> <laughs> when when you'd see the ships and stuff. But um, I thought that music note was really music notes, I guess, um, was was really fun and uh, just an intuitive way to, to do it. Like I, I just, I've watched a lot of movies where they interact in space and like that's the first time and only time i've really seen that kind of interaction between humans and extraterrestrials where it's just just music man what i was thinking about this time which is kind of silly but i've also seen it a handful of times at this point was like okay so what do the musical notes mean what are they saying because then they get into like the whole orchestral moment and it's like like the do re play me yeah yeah and then they get into this like huge musical moment like right after that i'm like oh now they're just like having a back and forth like whole conversation and like how do they know what's going on like like edc with aliens 
they know they're communicating, but they don't know what they're saying, which I thought was really interesting. But I was like imagining the whole time that like the notes were like saying like, hello there. And I was just like, I was like, what would you tell the aliens? I don't know. Hello. Welcome to Earth or something. And I love that they get like really, really slow and they're like, hello there. And then they get really, really fast. And they're like, hello there. And I'm like, how would you be able to communicate if I, like, if I went to somewhere, you know, say I went to, I don't know, I don't speak German. If I went to Germany and they're like saying German very slow and then I'm like sort of nodding along and then they speak German really, really fast. Well, when they- I'm like, I still don't know what you're saying. <laughs> to me, whenever the aliens were doing it really slowly, they were doing Chris Tucker to Jackie Chan. Like, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, I. it's very similar. <laughs> I thought it was very silly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's so many small choices. Like, if I, I didn't include everything because we would have been sitting here talking about it for like three hours. But um, there were so many small choices to make this sequence work. Like, uh, they went over the last 25 minutes of the movie. Like, the sophomore slump after Jaws could have been real, but instead he followed it up with another home run in a different kind of aspect. The slip up did come eventually, but like, to come out with yeah. this like so quickly after Jaws is so impressive. Do you have uh, any questions for me? Anything I can answer for you? Um, not really, but I do know you're a space girly. So what's your relationship to this movie? A space girly. Um, I, so this is actually funny. Remember when 2020 started pre meltdown of the world. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I should l- watch 20 movies that are important that I've never seen. Oh yeah, I do remember this. This was on my original this was on my original 20 list. Oh wow. Um so I hadn't seen it before and I it was one of those films, you know, the reason the list was made of like can't believe I have not seen this. I'm so embarrassed to say I've never seen these movies. I got to fucking watch these movies. And almost immediately after watching it, I was like, well, holy shit. Uh that was mesmerizing and awe-inspiring and breathtaking and also funny and also sad and just everything about it really captivated me um and i think like three days later i watched it again (laughs) like since i watched it in 2020 i've probably seen it like five or six times um it is it's visually like there are just sometimes where i'm like i really want to watch a visually important movie even if I already know what's happening. And this is like in my in my list of movies I, I try to watch when I'm in that mood. Um, do you have any comments or questions left for me? Yeah, I'm I guess I don't know your relationship to the Spielberg movies, but like now that you've seen this, where is it sort of like in your ranking of the the classic Spielbergs? Let's just say like any movie before two thousand. Honestly, it's probably outside of the top five. I like Jurassic Park more than this and Jaws. Um, I like the first and third Indiana Jones movies more than this. I need to revisit the second one. Shout out to Kihi Kwan. Um, yeah. But there's a lot I haven't seen. Like, I haven't seen Saving Private Ryan. Um, That's I, good. I, I have a soft spot for Hook. Like, <laughs> I do, too. I know. People really don't like that movie. Um, I love Hook. I will say this movie does feel very 70s in its pacing. Um just like if you rewatch rocky for the first time or just like if you rewatch rocky uh or go watch for the first time it's it's a slow movie especially considering um how that series develops into the movies that it becomes um it's slower and that's okay it's still great um but when i think of oh i want to fire up a spielberg movie i think i come up with a few more 
um, before I come up with this one. That's fair. I was just curious. Yeah. What about you? Nice. Oh, I knew I should have. <laughs> I should have expected that. Um, on any given day, it's Jaws, Jurassic Park, or Close Encounters kind of. If we're going like just the classics, because there's movies by him that I really love that don't feel very Spielbergian. Like I, I love Catch Me If You Can, but it's not the Spielbergness of that movie that I love, so I'm not counting it. I mean, that and, is a big father and, and son movie, so it could also be a very Spielberg movie. It is, but to me, it's a it's a Leo and Hanks movie. Like that's yeah. what makes that movie. All right. Anything else you want to say? Uh, would you watch this movie again? How do you feel? Kind of going off the top of the dome. I we were missed to say that like good good performances in this movie. I think we talked about the three year old kid more than the lead, um, who was played by Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> Richard Dreyfus is really remarkable in this movie. The thing is, with so I get Richard Dreyfus confused with Roy Scheider all the time. Oh jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Even though, like they're very distinctly different actors, humans. Um, but it's just it's just the name thing. Um, and it, it's always stuck. So whenever I I started watching this movie, I'm like, shit, that's Richard Dreyfus. I was expecting Roy Shatter to show up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Richard Dreyfus really brings that like kind of manic enthusiasm um, that is really important to this role, and like kind of the I guess the everyman. And so uh, before we get out of here, I just wanted to make sure that we talked about uh, Richard Dreyfus. As well as um, Melinda Dillon, because I thought she was also um, very strong as well. Every time I watch the movie, I'm reminded how much I don't like it when they kiss. I'm like, that's not what this oh, movie's about. Oh, that's right. They do kiss. That's like as bad as like, like Ray and Kylo kissing. And I was like, this is lame. That was that, I do I do remember when that happens. I'm like, that's some 70s shit, man. We did spend a lot of time talking about this movie, but I have one more. Um, the scene where he is like on the phone with ronnie trying to get his kids back he's like obviously being told that he's not getting his kids back and this is when you see like when they've moved out of the house and he is fully just given into the obsession the the mountain that was like a a sculpture in the basement is now like a centerpiece in the living room he's like staring outside being like wow i wish i could have a normal life again but instead i'm here having this crazy life and it's on the tv like and you're just like waiting for him to notice it on the tv is such good fucking movie making <laughs> it's so good it lasts like a minute and yeah, a half it does. and it you're just long. like ah and it like you already understand the conversation like it doesn't really matter and you're just like put the phone down <laughs> look Give up on your family. Look at the TV. <laughs> it's it's like such a fun moment um, that I I was just like so delighted when I watched it again. I was like, God, that's so good. Yeah, there's just such good like tension, whether it's thrilling or a little scary or just in general, like like you said, like turn around. So. Will you watch it again? Maybe, maybe not. No, I'll definitely watch it again. Um, I don't know if I'll like, okay. pull it up really quickly, but like I will watch it again. Yeah. Um, I love love a space movie. I love this version of a space movie where, uh, and alien movies where it's more about the threat or the idea of the aliens coming. Um, this is such an influential movie. One of my favorite movies from 2019, The Vast of Night, is like a real like through line. You can see like the pipeline from Close Encounters to Vast of Night. 
um, which if nice. people haven't seen that movie, then uh, you have 90 minutes. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, 10 out of 10 would recommend. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's Steven Spielberg. Of course, I'll rewatch it. Nice. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, <laughs> brother. So which movie did you like the most out of the two? I'm assuming it's the one that you actually like. <laughs> you are correct. It is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> I got to be honest. I'll, I think I'll rewatch Armageddon before I'll rewatch Close Encounters. But that's not what the question is. The question is, which movie do you like more? <laughs> I'm still picking Armageddon. Like, God damn it. It's so stupid. He has space dementia. That man's got space dementia. <laughs> the way they say it, it's so funny. Uh, and everyone immediately is like, absolutely. We didn't even talk about the bomb sequence. No, because it doesn't matter. <laughs> we have been here for so long. Which movie do we think Louis Dupont Duloc would like more? He does love friendship. I don't know. He does love friendship, but he does love colors. And he loves a father-daughter f- relationship. I just can't imagine he would like Armageddon. I think he would have a hoot. Okay. I Honestly, I think he'd love them both. He would, but... This is a debatable one. This is a tough one. Maybe he watched Close Encounters and then was like, man, like newspapers, like getting the story out there is important. And then decided to. Newspapers is his takeaway. From- <laughs> well, no, there's, <laughs> that, there's, that, there's that whole sequence in the middle that we didn't talk about that I skipped in my plot summary about like the government trying to cover up the existence of UFOs. And so then he was like, maybe I should get my story out there. And then he finds Christian Slater. Oh. Yeah. Louie, let us know. All right, friend. We got to get out of here. What movies are we watching next? We're talking about some chosen families. And so we love, you know, as people who love stories, we also love families you choose. So I will be watching Juno for the first time, which will be fun. And then Amanda, what will you be watching? I will be watching the very first, The Fast and the Furious. Fuck yes. Let's... (laughs) Fucking go. So this is like a duo we put on when we first started thinking about this podcast like two and a half years ago. And we're finally getting to it. And I'm literally so excited. Like you thought Armageddon was dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Is Michelle Rodriguez in the first one? Yeah. Okay. I like Michelle Rodriguez a lot. Dude. So this is such a special film. This is uh, these are incredibly mid two thousands films as well. What do you know yeah. about this movie, if anything? So I do know that. Um, I'm so nervous to get him wrong. Um, I do know that Vin Diesel's in it. Yes, and he nothing is more important to family than him to him. Yep, and that he races cars. I think. Yes. Okay. And now I know that Michelle Rodriguez is in the first one. Good. Who I like a lot. Have you seen Point Break? Um, what do you... No. Okay, never mind. Uh, uh, what do you know about Juno? I know that Elliot Page is in it. I know that yep. Jason Bateman is in it. Yep. Um, and it deals with teen pregnancy. Yep. Oh, and Michael Sarah is in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's it. Oh, oh, sorry. And I, I know more about this movie than I thought. And there's a Moldy Peaches song that is in it. I'll have a story about that in my uh, senior year of high school as well. I can't wait. I literally can't wait to talk about Juno. And honestly, I can't wait to watch Fast and Furious. This is like such a big one. This is up there with like talking about Rocky and the fa- and Creed 
Um, yeah. Like, truly seminal text. And I believe this that podcast episode will come out before Fast 10, Your Seatbelts, comes out. There you- oh, is that really what no. it's called? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Honestly, no. Zach, it could be. Like- no, it's just Fast X. Okay. Oh, my God. What is on your watch list? <laughs> this is a deranged episode. All nine Fast and Furious movies. No, but... Um, <laughs> no. That's going to be on your watch list. Look. <laughs> All nine Fast and Furious movies are playing at Harkins. Oh, my. Oh, you know, Victoria Grohl. For like... For like two or three weeks. Yeah. Like they're showing all of them leading as, up to Fast 10. As they should. Um, I'm, so I realized recently that I have not watched the John Wick sequels. Um, so I'm going to watch two and three before I watch the three hour movie that is John Wick 4. I'm also going to watch the Mario movie, which I was out on. When and then I watched one trailer and I'm like, I'm in next week. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll probably end up seeing it too. And then I kind of want to watch Death Proof. It's like the other Quentin Tarantino movie I haven't seen, um, but is not a spoiler for the pod. So um, I might check that out because I was thinking about Kurt Russell and uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead recently for some reason. I was watching Sky High. That's why. Uh (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. So uh, what about you? Um, So in the last episode, I said I was going to watch the James Bond movies. Didn't get to it, listeners. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so I'll be watching the James Bond movies. Um, <laughs> this is now where we're going to talk about We Bought a Shoe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen that? <laughs> that is not an original oh joke, by the way. I absolutely stole that. I but thought it you is fucked it up referring at first. To this movie. No, no, no. <laughs> it's better than Fast 10 Your Seatbelts. <laughs> we Bought a Shoe. Um <laughs> And I can't wait for uh, one of my Twitter followers to just change all of his We Bought a Zoo content to We Bought a Shoe content. Because every day he tweets, damn, I can't believe they bought that zoo. And it's funny every single time. Anyway, I'm excited to see Air. Uh, It looks bonkers. But everybody who has seen it has said it's like very entertaining. So I can't wait to see it. I love to be entertained. Um. And then Ari Aster's newest movie featuring Joaquin Phoenix, a director I love and an actor I love, uh, Bo is Afraid, is coming out like quite soon, like early um, April. So I think it comes out the week that this podcast comes out. So I'm very excited to see that. It's a movie I am like really writing for and I hope that it's good. Um, and then one of my actual dreams come true is that Hargens for their $5 movie night classics is putting 2001 A Space Odyssey in theater. And I've like already purchased a ticket. I have never seen this movie in theater. I am going to try to find the biggest, loudest possible Harkins to watch this movie in. And I might cry. <laughs> this movie is so moving. It's not mo- it, like It's just like I'm overwhelmed by the impact of cinema it has. And I can't wait to see it. It's like three and a half hours long and it doesn't matter. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I love 2001 A Space Odyssey. I know Odyssey. you do. The, what a revolutionary opinion to have it's that better than my- 2001 is a good movie. But <laughs> better than I'm my so revolutionary excited. opinion. Is that it's not. <laughs> it's just a lot of time with the monkeys. It's equally... It's 
three even sections. <laughs> it doesn't need to be. Anyway, um, that is very <laughs> exciting, though. I love seeing an old film in theaters. It was great to see Escape from New York at the Beverly um, with a rowdy yeah. crowd, multiple people dressed up as Snake. How fun. I'm excited to rewatch The Graduate um, in the same setting. Um, I love The Graduate. I'm excited to see how you feel about it a second time around. Yeah, I think I was just, I was, it was like one of the first films I watched in my like deep dive on cinema. And um, since reading Mark Harris's book, uh, Pictures at a Revolution, I'm excited to watch it with more context. Nice. All right. Well, thank Ooh. you guys for listening. We went to space and back. What a grand old time. You can always find a new episode of the Blind Spotters podcast on the second Tuesday of the month. You can subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Blind Spotters Pod and on Twitter at Blind Spotters. Zach, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Zach Pocklib. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. How about you? You can find me on all social media to send me any compliments at Amanda Luberto. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I don't know when I'll be back again.